I want to share with you a uh, story that I uh, actually heard, I don't know, 10, 15 years or more ago, but I think it just fits well with what we're talking about this morning as we're, as we're talking about uh, humility. And I was reminded of that this week as I was preparing for this morning's message. So there was this uh, U.S. Navy battleship was kind of patrolling uh, the, the northeastern coast, and I think they were off the coast of Maine, and it was at night, and it was pretty dark out. Uh, no moon, a uh, bit cloudy, maybe a little bit of fog. And so the visibility wasn't that great. But off in the distance, uh, one of the lookouts spotted a light. And as they uh, were traveling, they could see that the light was getting closer and closer to them. And it wasn't moving to the right or to the left. So they knew that this was a, a ship uh, that, was, that was approaching them. And so uh, the lookout mentioned that to the, uh, the commander. And the commander said, go ahead and signal the ongoing, oncoming vessel and uh, tell it to uh, change its course 15 degrees. So the, you know, so the signal man uh, took care of that, and the response came back and said, no, you change your course 15 degrees. And the commander said, uh, signal again, change your course 15 degrees. I'm a captain. And the response came back and said, sir, please change your course 15 degrees. I'm a seaman, third class. And the captain was a little bit angry at that, and so he said, signal again, change your course 15 degrees, I'm a battleship. After a a slight hesitation there, the response came back, sir, that's not an option, I'm a lighthouse. (laughs) You know, we we don't normally think of humility uh, as a virtue uh, unless it's exhibited by somebody else, but... Sometimes it can be a pretty desirable character trait, especially if your ship is uh, heading for the rocks. And, uh, you know, as Steve was mentioning, humility is not something that we normally think of when we think of our leaders and we think of power and we think of authority. I mean, that's, those don't normally go uh, with one another in the same sentence. And, you, you know, you just think about the world in which we live. And we don't have very many examples of leaders who are humble, and sometimes we stop and we say, you know, I don't even know that that works, that, you know, how can you be a good leader and still be humble? Well, this morning, I want us to look at the life of King Josiah, who was a leader and uh, who I think his greatest strength was actually humility. And he's one of my favorite characters in the Old Testament. As Steve mentioned, we're looking at the lives in, in this series of messages, we're looking at the lives of five different Old Testament kings who lived like 2,500 to 3,000 years ago. And we're asking ourselves, what can we learn uh, from the lives of these guys? And this morning, I think we're gonna, we have a lot that we can learn from Josiah. So I just want to dive into uh, the narrative of, of an incident that happened uh, in his life. And it's, it's uh, recorded in the book of Second Chronicles and uh, chapter 34, and you can see, uh, see it up on the screen behind me. Josiah was eight years old when he became king, and he reigned in Jerusalem 31 years. He did what was right in the eyes of the Lord and followed the ways of his father David, not turning aside to the right or to the left. In the eighth year of his reign, while he was still young, he was only 16 years old at this point, uh, he began to seek the God of his father David. And in his 12th year, when he was about 20 years old, he began to purge Judah and Jerusalem of high places, Asherah poles, and idols. Now, let me just stop there. High places and Asherah poles. You've probably heard of idols, but what are these high places and these Asherah poles? Just just take a step back and, and think about the big picture of the nation of Israel. Israel is supposed to be a theocracy, which means that, you know, put it in, in 
modern terms, there's no separation of church and state, so to speak. It's a theocracy. God is the ultimate leader of the nation of Israel. There's, uh, I wouldn't even call it a blurring. There's no distinction. There's no line between the civil and the religious government. It's all one. And uh, the people are, part of their civic duty is worshiping and following after God. And The religious laws are the civil laws, and the civil laws are the religious laws. And this is the kind of nation that Israel is supposed to be. And they're supposed to be worshiping just one God, the God who brought them out of Egypt, you know, hundreds of years before, uh, who calls himself Jehovah, and whom they're supposed to follow after. But the problem was, throughout the history of Israel, the people time and time and time again turned away from God and started worshiping the false gods of the nations around them. And they did this at these high places, which were places on the tops of hills or of mountains, where they felt like they could get closer to God. And these Asherah poles were these monuments or whatever that were set up around which uh, the people would worship. And then there were these idols as well. And this is not what the people of Israel were supposed to be doing. And so... And so Josiah said, this is a problem. We got to get rid of this stuff. And so he began to purge this. He, just, he began to remo- remove uh, these implements of, of false worship from the land in order to bring the people back to where they ought to be. So again, you've got the king leading religious reform in a sense here. And that's, uh, that's the kind of nation that Israel was. So let's jump down to verse 8. In the 18th year of Josiah's reign, so he's about 26 now, uh, to purify the land in the temple, he sent Shaphan, son of Azaliah, and Maaseiah, sorry, the ruler of the city, along with Joha, uh, the son of Johaz, the recorder, to repair the temple of the Lord his God. So you stop and you say, wait a second. Josiah has to send all these guys to repair the temple. This is Israel. This is a religious theocracy. Why has the temple fallen into disrepair? little bit of history of the nation of Israel. As Rich, I think, uh, went over this a little bit about three weeks ago. First king of Israel was a guy named Saul. Not such a great guy as uh, Rich talked about about three weeks ago. He was followed by a guy named David, who many of you have heard of. He's, he wrote a lot of the Psalms. He was a man after God's own heart and uh, somebody who led the people in a good way to follow after God. David's son Solomon became king after him, and we talked about him last week, and he was one who asked God for wisdom. God gave him wisdom so that he could rule his people. So after Solomon died, the nation actually was divided, kind of like a civil war situation. You've got about 80% of the nations up in the north, and that's called Israel, about 20% or so down in the south called Judah. And uh, they were sort of allies, sort of enemies. They had, you know, uh, difficulties with one another, but sometimes they allied themselves together. But uh, this is what had happened at that point. There were 20 kings in the history of the northern part of Israel. All 20 of those kings were bad. None of them led Israel to follow after God, which is, they were supposed to do that, but they didn't. In the southern kingdom of Judah, There were also about 20 kings during its history, and only eight of those were good. Only eight of them uh, encouraged the people and led the people to follow after God. Josiah was the last of those eight good kings. And in the 50 years or so prior to the time that Josiah became king, 
there was no good king. So in a sense, it's like saying, what what are we, in 2010 now, the last good president that we had in the United States, the last president that led us in the way that he should have was, you know, what, Eisenhower or Kennedy. It's that kind of a, a time frame that we're talking about here in the nation of Israel. So the temple had been neglected for about 50 years. It had fallen into disrepair. Junk was piling up. Um, and so Josiah, as part of his reform, said, hey, if we're going to worship God, we've got to have his temple uh, in, in good shape. So he sent a bunch of guys to make sure that it was repaired. The other thing that I want to point out uh, in this verse, in verse 8, is that last phrase, uh, to repair the temple of the Lord his God. Now, you, you kind of blow past that really quickly, but if you remember uh, three weeks ago when Rich talked about uh, Saul, the first king of Israel, there was an incident in Saul's life where he had disobeyed God and God sent a prophet named Samuel to confront Saul. And so Saul confront, uh, Samuel confronted Saul about uh, the things that Saul had been doing wrong. And part of Saul's response was, Samuel, I want you to go pray to the Lord, your God, on my behalf. And as Saul's saying that, he's essentially saying, look, I'm not a follower of God. You know, you are, so you pray to the Lord, your God, on my behalf, and maybe he'll take care of the problems that we're having here. Josiah, in contrast, views himself as a servant of the Lord, his God. So while Saul didn't really know God, Josiah did a huge contrast between these two kings. So verse 14, we'll pick it up there. While they were bringing out the money that had been taken into the temple of the Lord, Hilkiah the priest found the book of the law of the Lord that had been given through Moses. Let me just stop there for a second. The book of the law of the Lord that had been given through Moses probably refers to uh, what we call today the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Old Testament, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. We're not 100% sure that that's what he found, but we're pretty sure that that's what it was. And we'll come back to that in a minute. Hilkiah said to Shaphan, the secretary, I found the book of the law in the temple of the Lord, and he gave it to Shaphan. Then Shaphan took the book to the king and reported to him, your officials are doing everything that's been committed to them. And then Shaphan, the secretary, informed the king, Hilkiah, the priest, has given me a book. And Shaphan read from it in the presence of the king. Now watch this. When the king heard the words of the law, he tore his robes. And, and, and doing that is a sign of grief and of distress and of repentance and of humility. It's something that kings didn't normally do in that day. He tears his clothes, and he gave the following orders to Hilkiah and several other guys. And he said, go and inquire of the Lord, uh, inquire of the Lord for me and for the remnant in Israel and Judah about what's written in this book that has been found. Great is the Lord's anger that's poured out on us because of those who have gone before us. They've not kept the word of the Lord. They've not acted in accordance with all that's written in this book. And so you ask, what in the world could Josiah have read in, you know, the book of Genesis, which is, you know, it talks about the creation of the world. You know, is that what, is that what got uh, Josiah so upset? Or, or maybe it's something going on in the book of Exodus, which is talking about God leading his people 
out of Egypt, out of slavery into Egypt and forming this new nation. Or maybe it's the book of Leviticus, and you say, well, what would, would there be in Leviticus? Well, there's all these, it's all these dietary laws and things like, what do you do if your house has leprosy and, you know, and things like that? How do you respond to that? Or the book of Numbers, which has a bunch of uh, flock and sheep counts you know, and uh, numbering of different people. It also tells some stories about them wandering through the wilderness. I mean, what was it that Josiah read that got him to the point where he's going to just fall on his face, tear his clothes and say, man, we got to go talk to God because we're in a heap of trouble here. I think it was the book of Deuteronomy, the fifth book of the Old Testament. It's the equivalent, in a sense, probably the closest equivalent we have today is our Constitution. It's as if the Constitution of the United States had been lost for the past 50 years, not just lost, but ignored. Nobody cared about it. Nobody remembered it. And those who maybe knew something about it said, forget it. We're not even following after that because the book of Deuteronomy is in some sense the constitution of the nation of Israel. And Josiah realized that it had been ignored for the last 45 or 50 years. But the, the Constitution of the United States is not exactly the same thing as the book of Deuteronomy. We don't have a perfect modern-day equivalent. The book of Deuteronomy was written in the form of an ancient Near Eastern treaty between a suzerain, who was a big king, big dog king, powerful king, and a vassal, who's a lesser king or a lesser nation, who is taken under the protection, taken under the wing of that suzerain. So the book of Deuteronomy follows the pattern of an ancient Near Eastern treaty called a suzerain-vassal treaty. And part of that treaty, one of the features of that treaty is that the suzerain would say, look, I'm going to do the following things for you. For example, I'm going to provide for your physical needs. Maybe I'm going to provide some food for you. I'm going to lease land to you. Uh, I'm going to protect you from your enemies and, you know, and so on. And these are the things that I, the great you know, king, are going to do for you, the lesser king. And the lesser king pledges back and says, okay, well, I'm going to honor you and maybe I'm going to pay taxes to you and I'm going to have some of my people serve in your army and, and that sort of thing. And so it's an agreement. It's a treaty between these two where the suzerain uh, promises certain things to the vassal as long as the vassal does what they're supposed to do. But there's also stipulations in this treaty that say, if you, the vassal, don't do these things, then you're in a heap of trouble and there's curses that come down on them and the, you know, the suzerain can do all sorts of stuff uh, to punish the vassal for this. And so in the book of Deuteronomy, God is essentially seen as this suzerain. And well, he should be. He's the greatest king that there is. And the nation of Israel is the vassal. And so God is promising to Israel, if you'll obey me, if you'll follow my laws, if you'll worship me, etc., then I'm going to protect you. And I'm going to provide for you. I'm going to give you land and I'm going to give you crops and I'm going to uh, protect you from your enemies and so on and so on. But if you don't do these things, if you disobey me, if you don't follow my law, if you start going after other gods and worshiping them in addition to or instead of me, then you're in trouble and there's curses that are going to be called down in you. And that's what Josiah was reading. That's why Josiah just you know, freaked out when he saw this. He said, man, we're in a heap of trouble. Go, you know, and he sends, his, he sends his servants 
to inquire of God and say, what ought we to do? Because we haven't been living up to our part of the bargain. We haven't been following uh, what we're supposed to be doing. And so verse 22, Hilkiah and those the king had sent with him went to speak to the prophet Huldah. Huldah was a woman, a prophetess, uh, who spoke on God's behalf. They would go to her and ask her a question. She would speak to God, come back with an answer from God. So she said to them, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel says. Tell the man who sent you to me, this is what the Lord says. I am going to bring disaster on this place and its people, all the curses written in the book that has been read in the presence of the king of Judah, all the stuff that, uh, that is promised because they had not obeyed God, because they've forsaken me and burned incense to other gods and aroused my anger by, by all that their hands have made. My anger will be poured out in this place and will not be quenched. That's the whole thing with the high places and the Asherah poles and the idols. Because they've done all that, God says, you're in a heap of trouble. Tell the king, verse 26, tell the king of Judah, who sent you to inquire of the Lord, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says concerning the words you heard. Because your heart was responsive and you humbled yourself before God when you heard what was spoken against this place and its people, and because you humbled yourself before me and tore your robes and wept in my presence, I've heard you, declares the Lord. Now I will gather you to your ancestors and you will be buried in peace. Your eyes will not see all the disaster I'm going to bring on this place and on those who live here. So they took her answer back to the king. So essentially what Huldah is saying on God's behalf, what God is saying is, Josiah, you're right. You guys are in trouble because you haven't kept your part of the bargain. You haven't followed through with the stipulations of the treaty. And because you haven't, there are consequences to that. But because you, Josiah, have humbled yourself before me. That's the tearing of the robes. That's the weeping, etc. He humbles himself in front of God. He humbles himself in front of his people. I mean, what king in his right mind is going to tear his clothes and weep and, and look in a sense like a fool in front of the people and in front of God? It's a king who recognizes that there's only one God and he himself, the king, is not it and he needs to worship that one true God and follow after him, and they haven't been doing so. And so Josiah takes responsibility for what he had done and for what his predecessors had done, and he humbles himself before God, and God says, because you've done that, I'm going to delay the judgment on the nation, and it's not going to happen in your day. And so uh, Josiah lives out the rest of his life in peace, and about 25 years after Josiah dies, Uh, the nation of Judah is taken over by the Babylonians. And so God did keep his promise and withheld judgment, but then he kept his other promise and executed the judgment uh, after Josiah died. So then verse 29, Then the king called together all the elders of Judah and Jerusalem, and went up to the temple of the Lord with the people of Judah, the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the priests and the Levites, all the people from the least to the greatest. And he read in their hearing all the words of, and here's, here's your key phrase, the book of the covenant. It's the book of the covenant. Covenant's another word for the treaty or the agreement. The book of the covenant, uh, which had been found in the temple of the Lord. And the king stood by his pillar and renewed the covenant in the presence of the Lord to follow the Lord, to keep his commands, his statutes and decrees with all his heart, all his soul, and to obey the words of the covenant written in this book. So Josiah is saying, I'm going to do it. I'm going to follow after you. I'm going to keep 
my end of the covenant. And then verse 32, he had everyone in Jerusalem and Benjamin. Benjamin was the area around Jerusalem. He had them pledge themselves to it. Uh, the people of Jerusalem did this in accordance with the covenant of God, the God of their ancestors. So Josiah led the people in following after God. And Josiah removed all the detestable idols from all the territory belonging to the Israelites. And he, uh, and he had all who were present in Israel serve the Lord their God. As long as Josiah lived, they did not fail to follow the Lord, the God of their ancestors. So Josiah, he's a humble guy, but he's a strong guy. He's a strong king, and he leads the people, and he says, we need to follow after God. We need to obey the covenant that we've made with him. We need to live up to our end of the bargain. And as long as he lived, the people of Israel followed after God. And if you read the rest of the account of Josiah in uh, the next chapter, in Second Chronicles 35, you see just an incredible way in which he led the people uh, in following after God. But the key thing to notice here is that Josiah was humble enough to recognize where he and the people had disobeyed God. He didn't make excuses. He didn't blame anybody and everybody else. He said, yeah, we have not been following you. We and our ancestors have not not been following you. And it's my responsibility as the leader of this nation. I take responsibility for this and I'm going to do something about it as well. First, he goes to God and says, God, what should we do? And then he says, nation, people, we're going to follow the covenant that God has given to us. And so uh, God postponed the judgment. And Josiah, in response to that, follows God wholeheartedly for the rest of his life. And he leads the people in following him as well. So let's stop and think just for a minute about this whole idea of humility and, and leadership and, and all that goes with that. You know, as, as Steve mentioned, as I mentioned, we don't normally think of humility and leadership as going uh, together with one another. We don't think of position and power and humility. They, they, they seem, in a sense, somewhat antithetical to one another. And I think part of the problem for us is we don't really have uh, perhaps a right understanding of humility. And so I want to make just a couple of observations about humility that I think can, can help us as we think through some of this. First of all, humility is a sign of security, not insecurity. Um, we often think of humility as a sign of, of weakness, but actually it's a sign of strength. It's a sign of security. It's a, it's, it's a sign that we've got a confidence that we're able to admit when we're wrong and that we don't need to be so focused on ourselves. Uh, G.K. Chesterton, who was a British writer and philosopher, said, it's always the secure who are humble. I love that quote. It's always the secure who are humble. I think about uh, some of the leaders that we have seen during our lifetime. Martin Luther King Jr., humble man, wasn't trying to start, uh, you know, get a following for himself. He was trying to change, uh, you know, the institution of, of institutionalized racism in our country. Very, very powerful man. Made a huge difference. Changed our country, you know, hopefully forever in a positive way. But he was a very humble man. He wasn't trying to draw attention to himself. He was trying to do something that was going to meet certainly his needs, but ultimately the needs of others as well. Uh, Mother Teresa, again, She's not a a woman who, when you you hear her name, the first thing you're going to think of is pride. You're going to think of humility. She worked with the the lowest of the low, the lowest castes 
in, in India and helping with their needs, reaching out to them when nobody else would do it. And, and again, she changed thousands, hundreds of thousands of lives directly and really millions of lives indirectly. A strong woman, a powerful woman, a secure woman, but an incredibly humble woman. And her strength was not in force. Martin Luther King Jr.'s strength was not in force, but in a sense, a large part of their strength was their humility and their willing to serve, their willingness to serve and to put others' needs uh, ahead of their own. It's always the secure who are humble. Humility is a sign of security, not weakness and insecurity. The other, other aspect of humility that's, that's so, so important is humility is about others. It's not about me. It's about other people and not about me. Here's a, a quote I ran across this week that I think just really captures this. Humility does not mean thinking less of yourself than of other people, nor does it mean having a low opinion of your own gifts. It means freedom from thinking about yourself one way or the other at all. Humility doesn't mean thinking less of ourselves. It means thinking of ourselves less. It means I'm not thinking of how I appear to you guys. I'm thinking of what's your need. I can act as if I'm humble, but I can really be proud inside. I can be really be focused on myself. I can, in a sense, be proud of my humility. But when I'm able to get past myself and think of other people and their needs, that's when I'm truly humble, and then I'm not even recognizing it. You know, it's, it's almost, in a sense, something you're not conscious of because you're other conscious as opposed to self-conscious. So humility doesn't mean thinking less of ourselves, putting ourselves down in an artificial way. It means thinking about ourselves less. It means focusing on other people. The Apostle Paul puts it this way in in Philippians chapter 2. He says, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interest of others. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant and being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. The creator of the universe, the ruler of, of the universe, above whom there is no one else, humbles himself to become a human man. The creator becomes like the creation because he's thinking of the needs of the creation. And he allows himself to be executed by those whom he created because he knew they had a need. He was thinking of our need more than of his own comfort. So he put aside his privilege as God. He put aside his own uh, comfort in order to to take care of our needs. And Paul says that's the kind of example of selfless humility that we need to follow. Jesus is powerful. He's secure. He's not weak. He's strong. And it was that strength that enabled him to, to humble himself. And it was Josiah's strength of character, strength and security in his relationship with God that enabled him to humble himself before God and the people, not caring what people thought of him, 
but doing it because it was the right thing to do and the thing that was necessary in order to get the people back in right relationship with God. So I want to encourage you, I want to challenge you to, to do a little bit of soul searching this week. You know, ask yourself, I don't know where you are in your relationship with God. Maybe today is the first time you've ever been uh, to, to church in your life, or maybe it's your first time here at Renaissance. You've been away from church for many, many years, and you're coming back, checking out this kind of different church. If, if so, we are so glad to have you guys with us and, and happy that you're here and hope you'll come back again. But whether you're there or whether maybe you've been a follower of Jesus since, you know, since your earliest remembrance, you can't remember a time uh, when you didn't believe in Jesus and try to, to follow after him and love him and, and, and worship him. Wherever you are in your spiritual journey, ask yourself, is there any way in which I'm ignoring God, kind of like the Israelites did? Is there anything that I'm neglecting to do that I know I ought to do? Is there anything where I am choosing to live in a way that I know that God wouldn't want me to live? Is there anything that I'm avoiding? Has God convicted me maybe in some way about something that's not right in my life, in my relationship with him or my relationship with other people, convicted me in some way and I'm avoiding dealing with it? in a sense like the Israelites had done for, for years and years and years. I, I want to encourage you to take some time this week to just pray and talk to God and say, you know, humbly, Lord, I know I'm far from perfect. I mean, if, if you know, I'm putting you guys in, in my shoes and myself in your shoes. We're all in the same shoes. All of us are falling short in some way in our relationship with God. It's different for each one of us. But all of us are in that same boat of not always wholeheartedly following after God. And so let me encourage you, take some time this week and come before God in humility and ask him to show you where you're falling short. Maybe it's something you thought about as, as a result of one of the messages that you've heard at Renaissance. Maybe it's based on something you, you've read in, in the Bible. Maybe uh, something that somebody said to you after church and you were talking about something related to your relationship with God and, it, and you were convicted about that. Whatever it is, come before God in humility like Josiah did and ask him to give you uh, the strength and the ability to change. Ask him to forgive you and ask him to, to, sh- you know, to, to, to pick you up off the ground and dust you off and set you on the right path again. Because our God is a God of love and a God of grace, and a God of, of, of forgiveness and, and compassion. And he showed us that love when he died on the cross. He humbled himself in order to meet our need. And so we can be secure, like Josiah was. We can be secure in approaching him, not worried that he's going to kick us when we're down, or not worried that he's going to reject us because we're not perfect, but knowing with complete confidence that just like he did with Josiah, he'll forgive us, he'll pick us up, he'll dust us off, he'll clean us up, and he'll set us on the right path. And by his Holy Spirit, he'll enable us, as we're trusting in him, he'll enable us uh, to live the kind of life that he wants us to live. So we can humbly come before him and receive the blessing that he wants to give us without fear that he's going to reject us. So, So let me encourage you, take some time this week, don't put it off, make some time this week to, uh, to come before God in humility, ask him to show you where you're falling short and ask him to uh, work in your heart and in your life that you'll know his love and his grace and his forgiveness, but also his power to live in the way that he wants you to live. Let's pray.
Father, it's, it's uh, humbling to look at the life of, of a king like Josiah and realize that he humbled himself before you when he recognized that he and the people were not following after you. And then to think of our own lives and realize we don't always follow that example. And Father, I pray for myself and for each of us here that we, as we consider the life of Josiah and as we consider what Christ did on the cross for us, Father, I pray that we would humble ourselves before you, not being afraid that you are going to reject us, but in confidence that you love us and you accept us and you forgive us. So, Father, I pray that you would show us where we're falling short. Give us the humility to come before you and ask you to work in our lives and let us see your grace and your power in our lives so that we can live lives that are pleasing to you, that bring glory to you and draw others to Jesus Christ. We pray in his name, amen.